Good to see everyone. This is your first time. I want to extend a special welcome to you this morning. We're so glad that you're here, and we want you to feel welcome. We also want you to feel like you should come back every week, so we hope that happens for you. Um, we're glad that you're uh, with us this morning. Again, um, every, anyone who's here, I want you, you all just to feel free to bring new people. Um, I know that some tables are really full, but we can always find a place for someone else whom you think could, uh, could uh, benefit, which is everyone, right, but benefit from Bible study with other men on Tuesday mornings, and so feel free to do that even midway through the semester. Now, this morning and this semester, we've been talking about different encounters with Jesus in the Gospels. So if you're new to the Bible, um, the Gospels are the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and their primary burden is to tell the story of Jesus' life. And really, when it comes to Jesus' life, really, really Jesus' ministry from about 30 years old on for the next three years. And in those Gospels, the, the primary burden of the Gospels is to tell the story of kind of his final week. That's a third of the Gospels is given to the very final week of Jesus' life. So, but the other parts, the other two-thirds are given to, to uh, his teaching and his ministry among people. You know, John tells us what to prepare for um, in 114 as he gives us sort of an introduction to who Jesus is. He tells us that the Word became flesh, the Word is God Himself, that God became flesh. The big Christian word that we use for that is He became incarnate, right, the incarnation. He became flesh, and we have seen His glory. In other words, He has been with us, and that glory has been characterized by two things. His glory is characterized both by His grace and by truth. And grace and truth come together in the Gospels as Jesus encounters people into what we call love. Love is this beautiful um, intersection of both grace and truth. And the burden we felt this semester is to look at those encounters, look at the flesh of those encounters, and to see what it's like for Jesus to love real people and to extend that in our own lives to think about how we're called to love people. We're going to do that again this morning, um, specifically as we look at what it was like for Jesus to encounter children. So this is a big part of the Gospels. Jesus takes in children to himself and we're going to read a few passages this morning about those encounters. Look with me now at your handout, and we'll read together, starting in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. Matthew writes, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this little child, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now just a chapter later in Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. The children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he went away. Luke records the same episode, but he records it a little bit differently in 18, verses 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called, call, Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God now to teach us his word. Father, we thank you for giving us your word this morning. We do thank you for the time that we have to gather as men under your word. Um, we pray, Father, that you would give us all that we need to understand your word, not just mentally, Father, but understand it in such a way that it becomes a part of us. We pray, Father, that you would bring conviction this morning where we need it. We would be open to that, open to your scrutiny. Um, also, Father, we ask for assurance where we need assurance, that we would be opening to hearing once again that you are for us in Christ and not against us, and that we would learn what it is to live out of this calling that we are to be like little children in order to know and enter and enjoy the kingdom that you have prepared for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you can imagine, um, you know, there are a lot of encounters with Jesus in the Gospels, so we're not going to get to all of them this semester. Um, and with that in mind, we had to make uh, like editorial choices, like which one are we going to kind of see and emphasize and which ones are we just going to miss um, and, and kind of move over? And one of the encounters that, that Paul and I, as we, as we talked about it, um, as we talked about sort of scope and sequence uh, this spring, that we really wanted to hit at some point was this reality of Jesus encountering children. And um, uh, I think that seems odd for two reasons, okay? I don't think that was normally at the forefront of how you would think about the things that you would make sure you hit. But I think it particularly seems odd for us because uh, one reason, I don't think that, that maybe encountering children seems relevant perhaps for all the men in this room this morning. It may not seem relevant for all of you who sit in this room this morning. So I kind of want to test that for a moment, right? How many of you right now have children in your home ages 0 to 12? How many right now have children in, well, okay, so keep your hands up if you would for me. Tony, is that a lie or what? Oh, you're in? Okay, good. <laughs> okay, 0 to 12, keep your hands up. I, look, it's, it's, this is calisthenics, just, you can do it. You, if you need to help, like raise your hand, it's fine. Okay, how many of you, and keep putting your hand up, are regularly around children in some way, grandchildren or um, nephews, nieces, some, you work perhaps around children. How many would describe yourself as being regularly around children? Okay, so now we're, getting, we're touching more people. I'm curious too then, so how many of you have sat in a, a church, like our own church? Doesn't perhaps happen in every church. Keep your hands up, John, John Hawkins, thank you. <laughs> um, have sat in a church where you have made promises to care for children as they grow up. At, at, so anytime, if you're at PCPC, anytime you've heard of baptism, where you could raise your hand unless you just literally took, you like stayed silent, yeah. and you, you abstained from voting, right? You know? Okay, so that, so I think it, so I'll just say you can put your hands down now. Um, I appreciate that. I, I, I think it's, I think uh, children touch all of our lives in some way, um, or should, really, especially if we're a part of the church, the body of Christ. We, we make promises to care for our children, even if they're not our own. Look, Jesus didn't have biological children. So all of you who didn't raise your hand because you don't have children, you're Jesus, he's in your camp. He's like you, okay? Um, the second reason I think this seems odd is because I, I think that 
like when we read Jesus' teaching um, in these passages, the point that he makes here seems so uncontroversial in our culture. So uncontroversial. See, in the ancient world, uh, the, the world that Jesus is teaching and, and living in, kids were frankly not supposed to be a part of men's lives. They just weren't. In fact, there was a rabbinic saying, uh, a rabbi who gave this advice to his followers. Morning sleep, midday wine, and hanging out with children are what destroy a man. Okay? So midday wine, don't hang out with kids. That was sort of the view of what maturity dictated as you grew up as a man in that culture. Now, if we said that publicly today, that just wouldn't fly in our time and place, would it? At least on the surface, we seem to be very pro-children. Um, you know, just, just walk into a Barnes & Noble sometime and look at the sort of the section on parenting, how big it is. You know, we go to parenting seminars. Those of you who have kids in the home, and even perhaps you grandparents, we, you find yourself running kids around to activities all the time. We find ourselves stressing about their happiness and their success. We spend lots of money on them. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay, you understand that. I hear you. Even as a church family, you can go out, out, outside the, the room this morning and look at, um, we're doing some renovations to our church over the next couple of years, and a, a major impetus to that was um, a better space for our children, and not just our children in this church, but children in our community. We care deeply about children. But below the surface of all that, all the activity, all the resources, all that's going on, all that says that we care deeply about children, isn't it true that we often harbor the idea that kids get in the way of really important stuff in life? Kids get in the way of our business. They get in the way of our relaxation. They get in the way of our worship services when they're squirmy and they're they're making noise. They get in the way of our social commitments. Kids are not helpful for any of those things. I have three boys and a little girl ages 11 to 4. I've heard Paul say up here, Paul Goble, who teaches with me up here, and he has three girls, and I've heard him say that his house is, so three girls and a wife, that makes four, right? That his house is very emotional, right? My house is very loud, very loud, and so it always feels like on the second floor that, that it's, we're minutes away from the whole thing caving in, you know, and um, it rained all last week, and so it was harder to justify locking them out and making them go outside, but we did it, you know, even in the rain. Um, but the reality is that, you know, it's hard at night just to sit down and to enjoy just time to myself with kids, kids around all the time. And here's the reality, though we fret and spend money on and drive our kids around so that it looks like we're pro-kids, we still struggle to do the very things here that Jesus does with children. And that is to carve out, in the midst of a demanding schedule and a demanding life, carve out time for undivided attention and love, especially when stressors come into play. Now, I say that this morning just to say um, there's something that is universal here, even though we're in very different cultures, about Jesus' teaching 
that doesn't just apply to a culture where children were shooed away, but applies even to our culture where we never miss soccer games and where we spend big money on college education. The Savior and King of the world carves out time in the middle of a demanding ministry to give his attention to and to lay hands on children. There's more here, and I don't want you to miss this either. And, and, and he alludes to this in the passages. Now, these encounters with kids have children in view. The encounters here have children in view primarily. They're also about something deeper. The encounters here that Jesus has with children, and, and there are three or four more in the Gospels that, that sound a lot like this, are about our broader worldly assumptions of value, status, and importance. Who's important? What's really valuable? What is worthy of our time? And one of the things that Jesus is going to say over and over again in the Gospels is it's not who you think. Or it's not who the world immediately says is most worthy, most valuable, most important when it comes to who we give our time to. And because in Matthew's Gospel, this is the third time, the third time that he has done this with children, made this point with children, Jesus is saying to all of us in the Gospels that we are almost certainly going to miss this. Peter, James, and John missed it. Um, I remember my own ministry when I was doing campus ministry at SMU. I was a campus minister there for six and a half years. That strategically, one of the things you're trying to do in campus ministry is, I mean, probably true anywhere, you're just trying to build a group, right? So you're trying to get people to come to listen and to pay attention and to interact with you, and you're, you're hoping that fruit would be born for that. But the size of your group seems to matter. And, and, and let me tell you this, the size of this group matters to us. It would be very different if there were six people here, you know. But in campus ministry, that's a, that's a, that's a big emphasis. We're evaluated that way a lot of times. And, and so guess how, how you think about building a group. Who do you try to go after to build a group? What do you think? You try to go after the, what we would call the gatherers right? The people who then, because they had influence, could gather other people, right? And if you get gatherers, the thought is, well, they'll gather other people, and then it'll just sort of take care of itself. People will come because, because of the social equity that's involved in the gathering of the group. It's a top-down approach. It is, it is uh, strategic, and it's great. It's just not Jesus' approach. It's just not his approach, he, he almost never does that. And so we miss this, even in the most, most important, um, the most, that's the wrong way to say that, not the most important, but the, um, even in like our Christian circles, when it comes to Christian activities. In Jesus' kingdom, it is those whom the world considers unimportant. It's those who will never get a bid into some of our own clubs. It's the those who operate on the fringes of even our attention, that he constantly uses to illustrate how wrong our priorities can be when it comes to value and status. I just, I'm going to say that at the outset this morning, children are another entry point into this conversation, but the point that Jesus is making here is bigger than just kids. Now, we're not going to get into all that this morning. We're going to talk about kids, but I want you to store that away because you're going to see it resurfacing again and again in these encounters and the gospel stories. All right. So two points I want to make this morning as we unpack these passages together. The first is this. I want you to see 
how Jesus loves these little ones. Okay, you know, one of the things we're just trying to do is we're just trying to look at him and try to learn what love looks like according to how he lived. So how does Jesus, how does Jesus love, and then how can we imitate him? How does he sort of dictate love for us? And then number two, I want you to see who Jesus calls us to be. How does he love, and then who does he call us to be? And you'll notice in the passage that the challenge is not just to love children and to welcome them, it's to what? It's to what? It's to become like them, which would have been like, I mean, mind-blowing in that world that someone brought a little infant up to Jesus and Jesus said, hey, don't just like, don't just, don't just sort of welcome the kids, but you have to be like this. Like you have to imitate this. And the point he's making here is that everyone made in the image of God has something to offer everyone else. If an infant has an asset, right, has something that we can look at to imitate, then can't you imagine everyone does? That everyone does. And that means that the potential for relationships in general, all relationships have the potential to be mutually transformative. All of them. The people that we think that we're only giving to, those people have something to offer us as well. So we're going to look not only this morning at how Jesus loves, but also his lesson, his love and his lesson in terms of who he calls us to be. Let's look at those two in, in, in order this morning now. First, how Jesus loves these little ones. Well, there are four, more, four main things that Jesus does here. And I would say if you're going to write something down this morning, write these things down. Uh, these four things are good for kids. I think these four things are good for spouses. I think they're good for friends. I think they're good for girlfriends. I think they're good for anyone that you're trying to care for. And so here are the four things that we learned from Jesus this morning in terms of how he treats these children. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to these as uh, his simple liturgy of love. You know what a liturgy is? A liturgy is kind of a plan or a paradigm or a pattern. Here is the pattern that he sets forth for us this morning. First, notice that Jesus gives these kids his time. The first is time. The second, I want you to notice that he touches them. He reaches out and puts his hand on them. Touch. The third thing he does is he prays for them. And the fourth thing he does, and this is true in Mark's gospel, you see it less in Matthew and Luke's, but the, it's what he's doing when he lays hands on them. He blesses them. Mark specifically says in his encounter that he blessed them. Time, touch, prayer, and blessing. Not exhaustive, but all are good. Okay, let's talk about each of them for a moment this morning. First, look at, look at the fact that Jesus gives these kids his time. Okay, so the issue of him giving time is almost certainly at the heart of why he has to rebuke the disciples. Because he's in the midst of a demanding ministry, at this point, he's in greater and greater, uh, um, he, he's being elevated, and so people are coming to him in greater crowds. And you know what this is like, right? I mean, uh, maybe you don't know what that's like, but you know what it's like when life gets full and scheduling choices have to be made. Okay, let me say this. Because Jesus was fully one of us, scheduling choices for him had to be made. He had to make decisions, right? Priorities had to, had to, had to, be, had to be made. And kids weren't people that were, review, were viewed as receptive, important, responsible enough to take up the time of a rabbi. And yet here Jesus begins by clearing out all the other demands in his schedule. 
He clears out the crowds. He clears out the expectations that people had of him. And he gives his attention to these little bundles of distraction. He clears everything out at this moment and gives his attention to the people that that everyone else considered would be a distraction from the real work he had to get done. What's the principle here? The principle is this. Giving undivided time and attention to someone is at the heart of what it means to love them. Okay? Giving undivided time and attention is at the heart of what it means to love another person. Now, I want to talk about this for a moment because I think this is where, not only is this where love starts, but it's often where we are most vulnerable and confused, especially with kids, when it comes to what it means to love them. Excuse me, I have something in my throat. <clears throat> um, there's a book that's been really uh, insightful for me over the years. The book is called The Price of Privilege, written by Madeline Levine. And Dr. Levine is a clinical psychologist who spends all her, all her uh, practice essentially working with kids of affluence in California. So she specializes in affluent places and working with kids who've grown up in affluence. I want you to listen to a couple of her commentaries or a couple of her kind of uh, uh, statements in the book. One, she says this, study after study shows that parents regularly overestimate the amount of time they spend with their kids. Okay, regularly overestimate. In other words, what she's saying is we regularly think that we spend, we regularly think that we're better than we are. So you need to, whenever you think you spend with your kids, you probably need to divide, not multiply. Like, for reality. Like, divide by two, divide by whatever you think it is, right? We regularly overestimate the time that we think we spend with our kids. She also says this, as a group, affluent kids, and I'm using that right now to mean kids in North Dallas, right? I know not everyone in North Dallas is affluent, but for the most part, we live in an affluent part of the city. Affluent kids are less likely to feel close to their parents than children in poverty, less likely than any other group of children for that matter. Now, does that, does that shock you or not? Does that shock you or not? She said it shocked her when she found it out, and she you know, said, why is that? It's because affluent parents, even though some parents in poverty work multiple jobs to make a living, affluent parents are the parents who are most likely to live harried and hurried lives and to outsource to outsource mundane things that are time that are that are time heavy. So to outsource things like as like chores, teaching your kids how to like take care of things, to outsource tutoring, to outsource teaching kids how to dribble a basketball, because we have the sources to do it. I, I'm not making anyone feel guilty. I'm not saying you should call your whoever you are right now and, and stop doing that. I just want you to see what she says bears out. Okay. Now listen to her take on good parenting. Listen to what she says, how she summarizes what it is that consists of good parenting. She says this, while the particular manifestations of good parenting may morph and shift over the course of raising a child, the same two dimensions remain critical. What are those dimensions? How we connect with our children and how we discipline them. How we connect with our children and how we discipline them. What do both of those things have in common? 
what, what, do, what does connection and discipline require? It require? They require time. They require time. Warm connection, and here she's thinking about time set aside around a dinner table, or one-on-one time to take your child to breakfast, or just to be in his or her presence and to find yourself curious. Not about teaching a lesson, but just curious about what they're curious about. Just find out what they're curious about. She says that along with good discipline. Now, consistent discipline, if, you ever, if you've been a parent here, you know this is really hard. Because when you don't have time, what do you do with discipline? You either lash out, right, or you just, or you just give them what they want to make it be done. You ever felt that way before? I mean, you're sort of stressed for time, and so you either sort of, on one hand, lash out, or you just capitulate to the demands. And she says good discipline, though, requires consistency and time as well. These are the things that are necessary for maturity. Now, I want to throw in one other line for those who have teenagers this morning. Who has teenagers? Okay, good. This will be, I think this will be good for you to hear. I'm, I'm like two years away, so, but I feel like my 11-year-old thinks he's a teenager already, and I feel like he, he I think this fits. We'll put it that way. She says, study after study shows that teens want more, not less time with their parents. Study after study show that teens actually want more, not less time with their parents. Ignore the roll of the eyes and just assume it. Right? Ignore like what, they're te- what you think they're telling you or what, how you think they're acting and just assume that they actually want more of you, not less of you. I know I've kind of got off on a tangent this morning about parenting and stuff, but I, 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 I just want to make the point that I think is fundamental to what Jesus is doing here that to love someone and to love kids in particular requires that we give them our time. Do the ch- children in your life know that they are welcome to your time? That they are welcome to come to you? That they are welcome to impinge upon all your other demands and that you will clear out space to be with them? That's the first challenge we get here. Let me run through the other three a little bit more quicker. Number two, he touches them. He touches them. You know, both Matthew and Luke say here that Jesus lays hands on him. Mark's version, which I should have included here, says that he takes them into his arms. That is, he carries them. He held them. Now, I was telling the men earlier this morning as we gathered around for kind of our leaders meeting that that, uh, we need to be careful, right, how this is applied in our culture, in any culture, really. Touch is applied in different ways in different places, and it can mean different things. And people are sensitive to touch in different ways. So care and wisdom has to be given here. But the reality is that all of us as human beings first learned that we were loved by being touched. That's the first way that we learned being loved, is when we were held by our parents or caregivers. Someone held us, and we learned what it meant to be loved by being held. And to still think that that a child or that someone else needs a pat on the back or a high five or a proper embrace to feel touch. Jesus became a person, a man, not not just to talk to people. A voice from heaven could have done that. But you ever notice in the Gospels that when Jesus sees a leper or when he sees, I don't know, someone on the outside, that he doesn't just talk to him often, a blind man, he reaches out and does what to him? He touches them. He doesn't need to touch them, but he goes back and he touches them because touch is a form of what it means to be loved. Do your children know that you're willing to embrace them, to love them, to affirm them by the way that you care for them and touch them as well? Number three, and I'll add number three and four together this morning for the sake of time and get you guys to talking about this. The next two together, you see that Jesus prays for them and he blesses them. 
He prays for them and he blesses them. And prayer just means he lifts them up to his Father. And what this would mean for you as a parent and for me as a parent and for us as caregivers, especially because when we take those baptismal vows at this church, we actually say that we're going to pray for them. If you've ever, you ever heard them before. We like promise to do that, right? And what that means is we're saying that in order, in order for that child to be all that he or she is supposed to be, God has to intervene that we can't do it ourselves. Prayer is showing your child, it's believing yourself that God is the one who has to shape us to be who he's called us to be. And then what is blessing? What is blessing at the end? Blessing is the act of sending someone out with affirmation, with favor, with assurance. When you bless someone, you're telling them that they are loved, that they are, they are able to go out in your power with your favor and your love. And let me just make this point real quick. So Luke says that they're infants, right? Um, what had the kids done at this point to earn the love of Jesus? What have they done? Perfect SAT scores? I mean, what have they done? They've spit on him probably, right? They've wriggled away. They stink, right? And yet Jesus is, is, is giving them instead. He's giving them in the midst of this the assurance that he cares for them and he loves them. The children in our lives need to hear us say that we are for them. Let me say this. Um, they need to hear us say it so much that they begin to mock you because you say it too much. Okay? They need to hear that they begin to roll their eyes because they're hearing it again and again and again and again. And the reason they need to hear that so much is because the world has a totally different algorithm. The world that they walk out into has a totally different algorithm for the relationship between achievement and blessing. A totally different way of talking about that. And so our kids need to hear they need to hear that we are willing to bless them before they've ever done anything to earn that blessing. You know, Jesus says to these little ones, you are worthy of the favor of God, not because you've done anything to merit that favor, but because I have chosen to give it to you regardless. Okay? What does it mean to love? What are the four things this morning? What's the first one? Time, touch, prayer, Blessing. Thank you. Good. All right. Now his lesson to us. Don't just love kids, but be like them. How is that possible? Um, well, I, I'm going to skip some things. Let me, let me just, let me just, you know, I wanted to make a point this morning about uh, people in general, but um, let me, let me move forward and just talk about specifically what it is about children that we're to imitate. Okay. Let me, let me begin by telling you what it's not. Jesus is not calling us to imitate children because they are innocent. He is not calling us to imitate children because they are righteous little bearers of the fruit of the Spirit. Children are foolish. They're self-centered. It doesn't take very long for you to be around a child for you to, to notice that. I still remember, um, well, this, this is actually more reflection on, on my wife and I than it is on, on my child, but... Um, I, we, again, our oldest is 11 now. We'll be 11 in April. When he was two years old, Jade and I um, took our first getaway, and his grandmother, Dee Dee, came, uh, uh, came from Tennessee to Dallas to watch him. And, um, and we were gone, and she called us one day a little with some concern. And, um, and it was because they were, they were playing his favorite board game. 
some of you, I may have told you this story before, but um, his favorite board game at the time was Candyland. And I cannot tell you how many times I played that stupid game. All right, Candyland. Well, probably not enough. Not as much as I think I did, according to Madeline Levine. Um, I've overestimated it, without a doubt. Uh, uh, he was playing the game again. And if you've ever played Candyland before, the beating in it is there's no strategy, right? Like, you just turn a card and you go four. You know, you turn a card and it's whoever gets the best cards wins, right? And so, um, but one of the parts of Candyland is that that there are these, these are these bigger spaces, like a gingerbread man and a gumdrop, and if you hit those spaces, you go forward a lot or you go backwards a lot. You remember that, maybe? Well, you know, you can be all the way, he was about to win, very competitive, all the way, you know, at the very end of the board, and he gets the gumdrop card. Now, that's, that's, that's Candyland disaster. <laughs> he has to go all the way back to the beginning of the board, and as soon as he turns that card around, he's two years old, he looks at it and he sighs, a cuss word, an expletive. I'm not going to tell you what it is. It's been recorded, and I just, you know, I'm not going to tell you what it was. But it was a bad word, okay? And Didi kind of looked at him and said, uh, John Randall? Um, you know, do you, you know that, did, what did you say again? And um, as if she couldn't hear very well, she's getting older, you know, he made it very clear what he said and said it, you know, <laughs> articulately. And, you know, he even used it in the right context. Not, you know, you don't want to see... The gumdrop card when you're almost done with Candyland, and so, um, and so she said, you know, John Randall, you know, you, you can't, you can't use that word. That's a bad word. You know, we don't use that word. And he said, but I like that word. Um, I want to use that word. And then he said, um, Mama uses it sometimes, so not me, not me, you know. So. Uh, when my second son, Charlie, um, one time, this is actually the, a better picture of this, and you all have kids, you all have these stories, right? When Charlie one time, um, when he was about two or three, we heard him screaming in our room, and it's because he had just touched an iron. And we had said like four times, like, we're turning this on, do not touch the iron. And he is screaming, crying, because he's burned his hand from touching the iron, and we are holding him, and I said, Charlie, why did you touch the iron? Why did you touch it? We just told you, why did you touch the iron? And he goes, daddy. I just like to do bad things sometimes. And there, there probably is, no, I mean, true, I do too. I said, I do too, son. You know, and there is probably no better theology of, of sin than that right there. You know, I like to do bad things sometimes. I don't understand myself. Children are foolish and self-centered, and they do bad things sometimes. Jesus is not saying, look at your child and imitate their innocence. He is saying, look at your child or look at what children are or, or kind of who they are. And what they have to offer you is their humility. What they have to offer you is their dependence. Children are models of bold trust. Like we talked, I, Tracy told a story, Taylor, this morning, and Tracy, raise your hand. Now everyone knows who Tracy Taylor is, hard to believe, but raise your hand. About like when he goes downstairs to get his kids sometimes after a Sunday morning, that his, his grandkids will see him and they will run up to him and just jump in his arms. You know, and they're not calculating in that moment, is it worth it? You know, or what is the cost? Or, you know, they're not suspicious or anything else. They just do it. They just trust their granddad. You know, children are models of what it means for us to trust without skepticism, without calculating what we're getting out of the deal. This is really important when you read the Gospels. You're going you're gonna to encounter two strands of thinking in the Gospels about the kingdom of God. Okay? And we'll close here in just a second. One strand of thinking is that only the strong make up the kingdom of God. 
Only those who are strong are able to enter the kingdom of God. Those who endure, those who persevere, those who are able to weather the long journey of faith all the way to the end. The other strain is the opposite. Only the weak make up the kingdom. Only those who are dependent, only those who are childlike, only those who are incapable of making claims for themselves. So we're bound to ask, how in the world do these two things converge? How can we be both the men that God has called us to be and be both strong and weak at the very same time? And here's how. The gospel teaches that we are to be weak when it comes to relying on ourselves. And we are to be strong when it comes to depending on God. That the kingdom of God is for those whose strength comes not from self-reliance, but from learning to live dependently, dependently on Jesus Christ. See, how do you do that this morning? Well, we can just go backwards, and we can do what Jesus has told us to do, and we can look at the infants in the passage, the the liturgy we just mentioned. How do we do that? Well, first, time. Give Jesus your time. Give him your time. Spend time allowing his word to speak to you. Spend time with him. Rest in him. Rest in the delight that Jesus Christ wants you. That that he chooses you. That he loves you. That he welcomes you. That you are no distraction to him. Give him your time. Second, touch. Where do we feel the touch of Jesus today? Think about that for a second. Where Where does Jesus lay hands on us today? I'll tell you this, so um, when, when Saul was converted in Acts, maybe you know that, you know that story, uh, Saul was one of the major writers of the New Testament. When Saul was converted in Acts, Jesus appears to him. And do you remember what Jesus asks him? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? He doesn't say the church. Now, if you know the story, Saul has never seen Jesus before, he's never touched him, he's never heard him. He's persecuted Who? his people. When Jesus looks at the church, he sees himself. Paul makes the claim that that he is the head and we are the body. Where do you feel the incarnate love of Christ? Where do you feel the touch of Christ? You feel it in the church. You feel it by learning to live dependently on the people of God, his hands, his feet, his fingernails, his legs, each other. You feel it in the sacraments. You feel it in worship. You feel it in vulnerability when we live together. We depend on Jesus by living together as his people. That's where we get his touch. Third prayer. Hard to believe this, but did you know that Jesus prays for you? That Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Even now he's sitting there. And he's not like just sitting there vacationing, right? He is sitting there, the writer of Hebrews says, living to intercede for you. He is praying for you right now. What do you think he's praying for? What do you think Jesus spends time when he thinks about you praying for? I can tell you what he prays for. He is praying to the Father for all that you need to obey all that God has commanded. He is praying for you to have all that you need to obey that God has commanded. He's not necessarily praying for the life that you have vision for yourself, for the dreams that you have. He is praying that you have all that you need for all that God has commanded you to do. How do you receive that dependently? You walk out into the world this morning and you trust that what God has commanded you is not beyond you. That what God has commanded you in his word is not beyond you. That you have the power of Jesus living in you dependently and that what Jesus 
and God have commanded you, it's not beyond you this morning that you can do it. That you can obey his commands. And then fourth blessing, blessing this morning. What does it mean to live dependently on the blessing of Jesus? Here's what it means. It means that what he says about you, what he says about you is what you struggle to believe most about yourself. What he says about you is what you struggle to believe most about yourself, that you are not defined by your work where you're going next, that you're not defined by your achievements and failures, that you are not fundamentally defined by what others expect from you, you're not defined by your sin and suffering, you're not defined by your material wealth, that you are forever defined by the word and the work of Jesus Christ who has made you to be a son of the living God. That that is fundamentally who you are. Does anybody remember? Does anybody remember the blessing that Jesus receives from the Father at his baptism? Do you remember that? Three Gospels recorded. The blessing that Jesus receives from his Father at his baptism. What is that blessing? You are my son, right? Whom I love, and with whom I am what? Now, here's a question. Do you think Jesus knew that before that? That's a public declaration. Why is it public? Because it was for you, and it was for me. That Jesus lived his life in such a way not only to receive that blessing and for us to know that he had it, but that is the blessing he extends to you. When Jesus, when God looks at you, when the Father looks at you because of who Jesus is, that is what he says about you. That you are my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And we become like little children when we believe and rest in the reality that such incredible words uttered by God himself are true for us. That you're the beloved sons of God. How do I depend on Christ? How do I become more dependent? Time, touch, prayer, and blessing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. I see that I've gone long. Um, thank you for your word. We, uh, we pray that you would somehow use it. Um, we pray, Father, that, that each of us um, might have learned something new about you this morning and about your love for us and about what it means to, be, uh, to care for little ones and, by extension, other people in general, what it means to love. Um, we pray, Father, that you would help us to put this into practice, to believe even now that Jesus is praying for us as we do so and that what you have commanded is not beyond us. It is not beyond us because of your work in us. Help us to be both weak and strong, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.